You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. So let's jump into chapter 9 today, and we're going to start here in verse 1, heading to verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so our author is beginning to describe the items that one would find inside of the tabernacle. Now, to remind you, the tabernacle is the meeting place with God. It's the dwelling place of God. Now, we know that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere on this earth. God exists. He owns the world. But there's a special protrusion here with the nation of Israel in the tabernacle where God's presence delights and rests with his people. And so in that tabernacle, uh, the author talks about some terminology, some furniture, if you will. And, and then he says this in chapter 5, of these things, uh, we cannot now speak in detail. And what he's saying is, like, I don't want us to get bogged down with the details because I don't want you to miss the point. But he also knows that he's writing to a group of first century believers who would have been well versed in the idea of the tabernacle, what it is and isn't. And so there is a sense that he doesn't need to go into greater detail to get his point across. Now, you and I exist in a different context. We exist in a different culture. Uh, the idea of the tabernacle and its terminology are a little lost on us. And so we kind of, we kind of need the details that he's not going to talk about for us to have a little bit more understanding, uh, to gain better insight, and have greater joy that comes from these particular verses here in chapter 9. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to take a little bit of time out here to understand what the tabernacle is, and we're going to kind of walk through chapter 9 through imagery so we can understand that the tabernacle that we find in the Old Testament uh, actually points forward to a new tabernacle that we find in the Son in the New Testament. And so in the, the second book of our Bible, in the book of Exodus, God lays out this very specific plan for making a dwelling place for him on earth called the tabernacle, the meeting place. And so God promised to the nation of Israel that he would be their God, that he would lead them, but he also he also told them and promised them that he would be in their midst, that they would have his presence. And so he, in Exodus, commands them to make this tabernacle for his presence to dwell amongst them. 
why does God want to dwell amongst them? He wants to dwell amongst them so that the people can dwell near to God, that they can worship him to love and enjoy him with all of their life. We remember that is our greatest purpose in design in life, to be in relationship with God, to love and enjoy him all the days of our life. And so if you are alive... During the 40 years of wandering in the desert, after the exodus where God delivers his people from the Pharaoh in Egypt, you would come across a very, very fascinating sight. You would see, if you were a tourist and you came over a mountain, and spectacular, you would see on the horizon, you would see tents. And you would see tents as far as your eye could see. This is the encampment of the nation of Israel. Now, when we think of people wandering across the desert, we might think of a few dozen or 100 people, but what our scholars believe is that the nation of Israel at this time after Exodus was at minimum 600,000 people. Amongst those 600,000 people were all of their livestock. Now, many people believe that we're talking about greater than a million people that are wandering in the desert uh, in search of the promised land. So this is a sight to behold. They have pitched their tents, all of these tents, in a gigantic circle that its footprint would probably be the same size as modern-day Detroit. This is a massive, massive operation. And at the very center of that circle would be the tabernacle. That circle was divided up like a pie. Twelve sections, each section representing the twelve tribes of Israel. At the center is the tabernacle. And so there is a sense that the closer you move to the center of the circle, the more consecrated the space is. Now, what's interesting is that the Israelites are not the only nomadic tribe in that day. There are many other people that are tribal, that are nomadic in nature, means they're wandering to and fro, living off the land. And they, too, practice this sort of same encampment. They would encamp in a circle, and at the very center of the circle would rest the king, the king of the people. And the Israelites are no different. They're same but different. At the center of their camp is not a king, because the Israelites don't have a king. At the center of their circle is the sovereign God of the world, Yahweh, resting in their midst. Now, if you want to talk about intimidation, <laughs> that was intimidation in that day. And so as you would move inwards towards the center of the encampment, you would see the covenant. You would see the tabernacle. And it would look like this. you got tents all the way around it. And the first thing that you would see was the, the, the courtyard fence. Now, this fence was 150 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. It was at minimum seven and a half feet tall. So this is a very large structure. It was made of acacia wood for the poles. And the fence itself was the finest, purest linen. And that was symbolic of the holiness of God. It denoted that inside of this fence was holy, holy ground. And so you would see this fence, and then you would eventually you'd move to the east side, and you would see a gate. And that gate was covered by a brightly colored curtain made of yarn of blue and purple and red. And so the gate would have been on the east side of the tabernacle. Now, this is interesting. It's on the east side for a reason. In the far east, in that day, they believed that moving westward, so east side of the the tabernacle, moving westward into the tabernacle. They believe that moving westward was symbolic of moving towards God, and moving eastward was symbolic of moving away from God. And the meaning got its 
derivative from the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where God, after our disobedience, after rejecting him, kicks us out of the east gate of the Garden of Eden. He kicks us out of the gate, and we are moving west from perfection into a broken and rebellious world. And so that is why the gate is on the east side of the tabernacle. Now, once that curtain is pulled back, you would see a very, very intimidating sight. You would see what is called the brazen altar. It's this altar of sacrifice. It was seven and a half feet square by four and a half feet tall. It was made from acacia wood. It was, it was lined with bronze. And it was the very first thing that greeted you if you came into the courtyard. And it was intimidating because of the way that it was consecrated. Now, in that day, when the altar was set up, it was supposed to burn all day and all night without ceasing, fire all day and all night. And to consecrate it, the priest would take blood and they would wipe it on these four horn-like protrusions on the sides and the corners of the brazen altar. This would symbolize, uh, this is holy. And so you would walk into the courtyard and you would see an altar ever ablaze covered in blood, right? And so that is a very intimidating sight. And from that moment, right, you and I, a normative person, that is as far as we could ever see or journey into the tabernacle. From that moment, it was about the priesthood. The priesthood would take your sacrifice or offering of worship, and they would prepare it, and they would make the sacrifice on the brazen altar. And after they made the sacrifice, they might go through a ritual washing. And so after the altar of sacrifice in the tabernacle, in the courtyard, you find the laver. The laver is a basin full of water made of bronze that was required, uh, was, was a requirement for the priests to wash of themselves out of this basin. If they were going to serve in the tabernacle, they had to symbolically wash themselves of their sin and their impurities. And so that is the two elements that are in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And from there, you would see the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle itself would be 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, and its roof was lined with a tapestry that was made from four different layers. And we're going to talk about those layers and what they represent later. But if you entered into this tabernacle, which was a very rare occasion, what you would come to first is the very first room. The tabernacle is divided into two rooms. The first room would be called the holy place. The holy place. And in there, the priests did daily exercises. They tended to the furniture that was in this most holy place. And so you can see a picture on this. You see a lampstand or a menorah. And part of their responsibilities was to make sure that these candles remain lit, that they were replaced when the wax ran out. Right across from the lampstand was called the table of presence or the table of shewbread. And on that table, the priest was required every day to put 12 new loaves of bread on the table, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the very front or the back, based upon what you want to see it as, next to the veil that separated this room from the next was the altar of incense. And the priest was responsible every morning to take hot coals and burn incense. Now, incense were symbolic of the prayers 
members of God's people going up to heaven. And they wanted that God would see their prayers, hear their prayers as a sweet aroma to himself. And so these are the three pieces of furniture that are in this room. Now, there aren't very many people that ever got to access this room. You, somebody would do this daily, but very few priests ever got this opportunity, and it would be an absolute honor of a lifetime to be a priest that could go into the most holy place. But beyond the most holy place, through the veil was an even more limited access to place called the Holies of Holies. And it held the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is, we all think of Indiana Jones, right? You've got running through your head, the Ark of the Covenant. This covenant is a chest that held the, the t- tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. It housed in that day a budding staff from Aaron and a golden urn full of manna. Now, they, those are symbolic. The, the, the stone tablets represents God's righteous decree. These are the terms of the covenant with God that these people are supposed to live by these laws. These laws echo the perfection and the righteousness of God. God calls his people to live by the law so that he is echoed in the world in his love and his goodness. Now, the budding staff of Aaron is an interesting one. It's in there so that the people of God are reminded that God appointed Moses and Aaron as their leaders because, as we know, the Israelites are a grumbling people. And look, I'm a grumbling person as well. The staff is in there to remind them, look, God picked Moses and Aaron to lead you no matter what you think. And then lastly, you have this golden urn of manna, and that is there to remind them of God's provision who rained down what manna in the desert during the time in the wilderness. And so on top of that chest would sit something called the mercy seat, very intimidating. And from the mercy seat, God had given Moses the Ten Commandments, but now after the Ten Commandments, it becomes the place of judgment. And so once a year, once a year and only once a year did somebody enter into this space and they would bring with them blood of a ram. Now, they could only do that after making uh, sufficient sacrifices for themselves and their uncleanliness and their unholiness before they could even step room into that holy of holies one time a year. And they couldn't stay long because it said that the people of that day, they feared that if you stayed in there too long, that God's presence would crush you. It would destroy you. And so they would take this blood and they would put it on the mercy seat. And it would be symbolic. It conveyed an imagery that only through this offering and through the blood that the condemnation of the law could be taken away. That the violations of God's law were covered by this blood. And so this is the tabernacle as you might find it in the Old Testament before the days of Christ. And our author conveys to us two major issues with this tabernacle that he wants to address. And we find those here in chapter 9, verses 6 through 10. He says this, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but in the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And so this is saying that this tabernacle was going to stay until the Reformation, not the Martin Luther Reformation, but until Christ came. And so there are two major issues that he identifies in this text. The first is this, is that the old covenant, the old tabernacle meant limited access. It meant limited access to God. The closer you got to the holier of holies, this room, the more limited the access was. There was one person that could go in one time of year. Normal Joes like you and I, we never had direct access to God ever. Only through the priesthood and only through him going there one time a year. There was no direct access to God for us. It was very limited. And the second issue that he raises is that it has limited efficacy, meaning it is limited in its effectiveness. And so the blood sacrifices that were given by these priests only covered unintentional sins. We read that in verse 7. They weren't sins of the will. They were sins of ignorance. They were sins that you broke the law without knowing, and, and then you only learn later, it, or if ever, learn that you broke the law. There is no provision in the Old Testament sacrificial system for forgiveness of premeditated sins. There is absolutely no sacrifice that can bring forgiveness for premeditated sins in the Old Testament. They would have been called sins of the high hand. And I like words, and I like that phrase, sins of the high hand. They were the kind of sin without remedy. And God speaks of it this way in Numbers chapter 15, and I'll just read this for you. Talking about the sins of the high hand, he says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from amongst his people because he has despised the word of God and has broken his commandments. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquities shall be on him. So these are premeditated sins, sins of the high hand. The tabernacle here in the Old Testament cannot deal with all of the sins of all of the people, only some. And so it can only symbolically cleanse us. It cannot, as it says, make perfect our conscience. It cannot bring to us the fullness of peace with God. But what our author has been advocating over and over again in this letter is, is how Christ is better in every single way than the old covenant that we find in the Old Testament. And he makes that claim here that Christ is the better tabernacle. He's going to bring us something different. And we pick that up here in verse 11. He writes, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's an interesting phrase, made, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption 
For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so in this text, there are wonderful, glorious truths about the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we see that this tent, this tabernacle that we find in the Old Testament actually pointed forward to a more perfect tent that would come not made by the hands of man. And what is that tabernacle? Or precisely, the better question is, who is that tabernacle? It is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true tabernacle. And in our New Testament, in the very opening of the Gospel of John, we find some wonderful words that convey this truth. In John 1, this beautiful prologue exists, this beautiful introduction where John, the Gospel writer, an eyewitness to the person and the work of Jesus, speaks about creation, design, and the Trinity. And this is what he says in John 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so this term, Word, implies the reason that gives order to the universe. And that word or reason that gives order to the universe was with God in the beginning, and that word was God. John, the gospel writer, is using this term word to identify the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is the reason in the order of creation. He is why we exist, the reasoning behind everything. And he is saying that he was in the beginning with God and he was God, not alone, but with God, a, a part of the Godhead, our God, one God in three persons. And so he goes on to talk about who Jesus is, where he came from. And then for us today, he says something very interesting in verse 14 in John 1. He says this, and the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh, the son of God, and dwelled amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the son of God. Now, what is interesting here? is that Jesus is conveyed as the very reason or meaning of the order of all the universe. We exist because of Jesus, and that word came to dwell in flesh amongst us. Now, there's an interesting way that that term is translated in other translations. That word dwell can be translated into tabernacle, a tent. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. And so what our author is saying to him is that everything that you knew about worship and salvation through the Old Testament tabernacle pointed to the better tabernacle that would come in Christ, Jesus himself. And so I want to lay out for you, as we walk back through these images, how the Old Testament tabernacle was an object lesson or typology that pointed to the person and the work of Jesus. 
And so if we remember that very first picture of the tabernacle surrounded by tents, this very first picture, we see this tent that is surrounded by a courtyard, a white tent uh, of pure linen. And it is symbolic because it highlights the separation between God and man. God is holy and our sin separates us from him. In Jesus, we have one who is pure as white. He's white as snow. He's pure, clean, without sin. And for us, when we come to faith in Jesus, we are hidden in the purity and the whiteness of Christ. When God sees us, he sees us as white as snow because of the sun. And then we move to the gate, this gate that is brightly colored with a curtain that, that draws its people towards itself. This curtain that's exclaiming, come to me. God wants his people to draw near to him. And we remember the words of Jesus in the gospel of John when he says that I am the door. Truly, truly, I am the door. I am the gate. Jesus is the gate. He is the one that allows us to be entrance into relationship with God. He is the way and the truth and the light. And as you come into that relationship with God, what do we, through Jesus, what must happen? Atonement, right? And we meet the brazen altar of wood. And we remember that Jesus was sacrificed on another wood altar, this one, the cross, as the propitiation of our own sins, that Jesus died a ransom death for our sins. And to be cleansed through his death and his resurrection, we must be washed through the blood. And so we see this labor that Jesus, through his life and his resurrection, resurrection, he washes us from uncleanliness. He washes us from our sins. That Jesus is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because God wants relationship with his people. And it is through Jesus that we come to this tabernacle. We come to the tabernacle. And, and we remember this tabernacle. And we talked about the tapestry that existed on it. The tapestry that was made about four different parts and those four different parts have wonderful and symbolic meaning. The very first layer, the innermost layer, was fine linen yarn of blue and purple and red colors. It was ornate and it was beautiful. Blue represents divinity. Purple represents kingship. And red represents redemption. That by faith in Jesus, we know the divine son who is our king and our redeemer. And on top of that first layer would have been this interesting layer made from goat hair. Now, who wants a layer made from goat hair? It's interesting in that terminology, but it represents something very profound. If we read in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25, we're reminded that when Jesus comes back, he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep are the true believers in Christ, and the goats are those who are in unbelief, who are still in their sin. And so goat hair is symbolic or signifies a sinful person, is a sinful person. But we remember this. What was the role of Christ in our life? That Jesus was made sin for us. He was made sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And on top of that layer of goat hair 
came the ram skin layer that was dyed red to remind us that Jesus bore our sins, that he paid for our sins. And above that red-skinned layer was porpoise skin. That's porpoise skin. Or some think tan badger skin, some sort of aquatic mammal. And it would be the very exterior layer of this tapestry in the tabernacle. It was gray. It was solid. It could withstand, withstand any storm or attack. Um, but from the outside, the tabernacle seemed very drab, very uninteresting. Its true beauty could only be seen from the inside. And that is absolutely wonderfully true of who our Savior Jesus Christ is. Because we remember this prophecy that Isaiah gave about the coming Son of God. In Isaiah 53, when he said these words, he said, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces." He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Inwardly, Christ is full of beauty, but outwardly, he is simple and humble as a servant. The tabernacle is the complete picture of who Jesus Christ is. And inside of that tabernacle were the furniture, and that furniture pointed to Christ himself. Christ made many claims about himself while he was on earth. And amongst those were, were a few of these. Consider the lampstand. And I want you to hear in your minds the words of Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. That Christ is the light of the world that shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Christ leads the way. And across from the menorah or the lampstand would be the presence, the table of presence or the table of showbread. And I want you to hear, as you see this imagery, the words of Jesus who say, says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus gives us life, and he gives us life abundantly. And I want you to consider the altar of incense symbolic of the prayers of God's people. And I want you to remember the words of the author here in the book of Hebrews who reminded us last week that Jesus, for those who draw near to God, always lives to intercede for them. That Jesus is in the presence of God and his prayers go up like incense to God for us on our behalf. And Paul writes of this wonderful truth and the hope of our lives here in 2 Corinthians 2, that for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There is a sense in which God receives us with enjoyment, fragrance through the prayers of Christ. And Christ today is in the very presence of God. There is no veil. Something very significant happened on the cross of Christ. As his body was torn in two at the very moment of his death, the curtain, the veil that separated the holy place from the holies of holies ripped from the top down. God 
signifies this, that Jesus is in the presence of God. He's praying for us in this very moment. We are welcomed into the presence of God through Christ, the better tabernacle. Significant. He separates us from judgment. His blood is poured out on the mercy seat. And I want you to listen to what the author says here in verses 23 and 24. It says this, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so let me leave you with two wonderful truths about the true tabernacle of Christ. It's because of Christ that we have unlimited access to God, that we can draw near the Father. We don't need goats. (laughs) We don't need the blood of rams. We don't need the ritual washings. We don't need to be from a certain line of people or have certain roles. Everyday people like you and I can have access to the God of the universe through Jesus. Through Jesus, we have relationship with God, the very thing we were designed to do, to love and enjoy God all the days of our life. And it is through the true tabernacle of Jesus that we have unlimited uh, effectiveness. Jesus' blood covers all of our sins, not just uh, the sins of ignorance or or unintentional sins, but Jesus died for all the sins of all the world. And our author says that here in verse 26 in chapter 9. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All of the work of salvation, all that is necessary for relationship with God, all the sacrifice required to worship was authored and fulfilled in Christ. There is nothing that would make you more pleasing to God than you already are right now by faith in the Son. God loves you through the Son, and you can't add to that work. Jesus says, come to me, all who are labored labor, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Listen, friends, this world and culture is going to teach you that you have to do things to earn approval for God, that you're going to need to chase a feeling to know and be loved by God. But I'm telling you, we are a creation at rest by the work in the person of Christ. We are a creation at rest And so our responsibility in this is to find greater belief and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, to rest in his presence, to enjoy who he is, to know him better. We are a creation at rest through the better tabernacle of Jesus Christ. And so next week, we get to talk about the better blood of this covenant and its incredible effectiveness over the weight of our sins. Look forward to talking to it then.